to continue and to close out our two-week sermon series called Crying Out to God in the Lament Psalms, Comfort in Hardship, Trouble, Suffering, and Pain. And we begin with a little peek again at the Psalms overall, and we say that Psalms are read more than any book of the Bible. In Orthodox Judaism, the tradition is to read the Psalms every 30 days, and some of us are likely now in that new habit. And what would that do for us? And uh, the, the information on these slides here, the next few slides, is from Martin Rosenberg and Bernard Zlotowicz, both of whom are coming to the end of their life and wrote this work on the Psalms together. The Psalms are also found more than any Bible book at Qumran. And this is the place of a Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is actually Cave 11, uh, which we've been into twice, my wife and I, in 1998 with a study tour, and in 2012 with this congregation, we went up into Cave 11 where the great Psalm scroll was found. You can see there Elliot Clayman and James Klein, and deep into the cave there is actually um, Mark Silverman. On the far right is our tour guide. How about the appeal of the book of Psalms? The book's appeal rests on its success in addressing our basic spiritual needs and human emotions, touching on hope and fear, revenge and forgiveness, cruelty and compassion, integrity and betrayal, sin and righteousness, the Psalms treat the full range of human experience. And then we have the psalmist's yearning to commune with God, which could prove to be so intense as to cause the psalmist physical pain. How about this? In his world marked by insecurity, Anybody living in a world marked by insecurity and beset by dangerous foes? In that insecure world, the psalmist reached out to God for hope and reassurance. The psalms thus bespeak the human condition and help to guide us in confronting the predicament of our existence. This quest for God supported by an abiding faith, which is actually trust, mingled with occasional doubt and impatience, pulsates throughout these poems and serves to make them timeless. The 150 Psalms we said last time were divided into five books, no doubt according to the five books of Torah. And it was said that Moses gave the Jews the five books of Moses, so David gave them the five books of the Psalms. We saw this, we saw that in the five books, there's a host of lament psalms in book one, Psalms 1 through 41. And then we saw that the Psalter, the book of Psalms, ends with a host of praise psalms. And from that, we concluded that even the structure of the psalms indicates to us that the road to praise is paved with lament. <clears throat> Now, at the top of the Psalms, you see many things. There are various headings for different Psalms. There's actually 10 different authors listed for the Psalms, including Asaph and Korah. And the point here is that a connection with David was made for the entire Psalter. Why? Because as the compiler, he's called the sweet singer of Israel in 2 Samuel 23.1. 
He's called a composer of hymns of lament in 2 Samuel 1.17, and he's the one who established the singing guilds in the temple, and that's in 1 Chronicles 6.16. So the word la David, which the le, the preposition, could be of there, of David, appears at the beginning of 71 out of 150 psalms. See how common that is, how much is attributed to David. And then a specific event in the life of David appears at the beginning of 13 of the 150 psalms. In the Midrash Tehillim, the Midrash, the story about the psalms, verse by verse, said Rabbi Yudan in the name of Rabbi Yehuda, whatever David says in his book applies to himself, to all Israel, and to all times. It applies all the more to Messiah followers. Because Yeshua is the permanent promised Davidic king, whatever David says in his book applies to all Messiah followers. What does this Davidic focus of the Psalms teach us? I gave this to you on a separate slide. So you have the handout for all the slides, but you have a separate handout that has these two because this is such a an important point to be made to us as a congregation, especially seeing I'm the one who gave this previous sermon that had to do with the lion-like strength that comes from appropriating our Davidic heritage. That is not the whole story. The whole story is here. Appropriating our Davidic heritage is not just about appropriating kingly, lion-like perseverance, and the ability to overcome with Davidic army-like strength from God. It is not just about that. Appropriating our Davidic heritage is also about appropriating priestly, lamb-like perseverance and the ability to overcome with Davidic suffering servant-like dependence upon God. You see in the beautiful difference and the way from lament to praise, it's Davidic army-like strength from God sometimes, and it is suffering servant-like dependence upon God that precedes praise. Our conclusion here, David was a model king-priest, precisely because Israel was called to be a kingdom or kingship of priests. See Exodus 19, 6. Now, why was David called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14 and Acts 13, 22? I want to suggest that the biblical perspective is that David was a model of wholeheartedness. Did you happen to read this week's Darash? from the Shiloh Tabernacle Synagogue that Howard wrote there for us this week. And what struck me that I had to write to him immediately about when he sent me the Darash to edit, I said, Howard, you're making the same point as the sermon with no previous discussion. That wholeheartedness that we speak about in the Shema robustly when we declare it is the key to it all whether we're in hardship or in praise, wholeheartedness is the key, as we shall see. 
This is Solomon Schechter speaking now about this biblical perspective of David's wholeheartedness. Prayer is indeed, as the rabbis call it, the service of the heart. Though humanity should praise the Holy One, blessed be he, with every limb in his body, even as David did, who praised him with his head, with his eyes, with his mouth, with his ears, with his throat, with his tongue, with his lips, with his heart, with his reins, with his hands, with his feet, as it is said, all my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? From Psalm 35:10, nay, with his, the author says, soul, the word is what? Nefesh, with your whole being. Nay, that is, no way, with his whole being and his breath. Think about that. Because every morning when we wake up, I'm faced east. Give thanks before you, living the eternal king, for you have restored my breath within me with compassion. Great is your faithfulness. Imagine starting our day that way. The Qumran perspective, the Dead Sea Scrolls place, is that David was a model of wholeheartedness. There's a passage in 11Q Psalms, that's cave 11 of Qumran, the Psalm scroll, that says, And David's son of Jesse was wise, and a light like the light of the sun, and learned, and discerning, and what? And perfect in all his past before God and people. Can you imagine the word perfect was used? And how well do we relate to perfect? When we hear the verse in English that says, be perfect for I am perfect, how many are comfortable with that English translation? Notice that zero hands went up and the only hand that went up was to humor, humor us, yes? We're going to deal with what is this biblical perfection that is called for, and it's one of the most mind-blowing things in the larger course that's going to be coming up online on this very topic. What of this perfect in all his paths before God and humanity regarding David? You go to Leviticus 19.2 and you read, Speak to the whole congregation of the Israelites and tell them, You must be holy, for I am holy. You must be holy because I, yod heh or the Lord your God, am holy. Did you ever trace that through to the New Covenant Scriptures and see by the time it's in the Gospels? It doesn't say be holy, for your heavenly Father is holy. It says be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's where I think we make the disconnect because we don't relate to the word perfect. What if the word perfect there in Hebrew, tamim, and the word in Greek meant something different? In Deuteronomy 18.13, look at the English translations. The word there, the very first word in Hebrew is, can you read it? Tamim. There it is. And the English of the net says, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. And the English of the nets, the New English translation of the Septuagint, says, you shall be perfect before the Lord your God, translating that Greek word teleos. And look at the New American Standard, blameless, and the CSB 17, blameless, and the ESV, blameless. Anybody feel like this past week they lived blamelessly before the Lord? So you read the passage and you don't relate because you think, I can't do that. What if it meant something else? How about the Tanakh translation? 
Look at that from the 1980s. You must be wholehearted before the Lord your God. What if that should be our understanding of perfect in both the Tanakh and the New Covenant Scriptures? Let me suggest that's exactly why the Tanakh translation translates it this way. Now, can we relate to being wholehearted? We have to say yes. Why? Because of all people in all congregations, we're the ones with the audacity to declare Deuteronomy 6.5. And you shall love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart, with the whole of your being, with the whole of your muchness. And I want to show you how David did this even when he created the sin that God forgave him for, but we don't. There it is. I couldn't help but put it in the slide deck. It all ties back to the Shema, the Ve'ahavta of the Shema. And there it is, Matthew 5, 48. Look at that bottom translation. Therefore, you shall be wholehearted just as your heavenly Father is wholehearted. He comes this way with everything he is to reach us. And the question is, do we, as his covenant partner, come this way with everything we are to benefit from everything that he is? And then I left you this this citation. I even left you the link at the bottom. You can go to it. And you can read this article by Kent Yinger about retiring the word perfect and in its place understanding something greater. And we're saying that would be wholeheartedness. David was a model of wholeheartedness in the way of the Lord, which includes repentance. Many have a tendency to reduce David to his major sin. So we're reading the scriptures, and we read about David, and we have a very high view of David until David spies a woman from high up in perspective, probably doing what she should have been doing, where she should have been doing it, but he stuck his nose where it didn't belong. And he saw a woman, and he saw that she was stunning, and his desire got the best of him. He not only was wholehearted about getting her, he saw to it that her husband was killed in battle so he could have her. That's an egregious sin, would you agree? But we never forgive him for it. So we can't understand how is it that he could be called a man after God's own own heart. Let's find out. David, a man according to God's own heart, in light of 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 25. Guess what? We're going to take the time to actually read it. I want you to see the story of David in this egregious sin of adultery and seeing to a murder. But I want you to then watch his behavior that doesn't get read in the text. Then the Lord said to, then the Lord sent Natan to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare food for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's only ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Natan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Natan then said to David, You are the man. Everybody needs a Natan in their life, yes? That tells you what you've done wrong in some big poetic way, so there's mercy in you figuring it out, yes? But then when you don't figure it out, he says, let me tell you the way it is. That's love according to Proverbs 27. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Shaul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Yehuda. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Then David said to Natan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Natan said to David, the Lord has also, what? Taken away your sin. Even in the Tanakh, there was a provision for sin. It's greater today, but it was great yet then. And you shall not die. So he won't pay the penalty of death. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born to you shall surely die. So Natan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. What does David do next? Notice, David therefore inquired of God of the child. David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. Anyone here that can say when they got to a place of hardness, they laid all night on the ground? The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. He's so distraught over the situation, he cannot eat. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him the child is dead since he might what? Do harm to himself. But when David saw that his servants were whispering, ah, an astute king, David perceived the child was dead. So he said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David did what? He arose from the ground he had planted himself on to cry out to God in the hardship and suffering of his own doing. He washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. Is that the pattern we're following when we enter into hardship, whether it's our own doing 
or not, it randomly strikes us. He worshiped. Then he came into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And his servant said to him, what's this thing you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arise and eat food? He said what? While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for who knows? Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, as he promised in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 the number one revelation of who God is in his character. He may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son and named him Shlomo, Solomon. And now the Lord loved him and sent word through Natan the prophet, and he named him Yedidiah, for the Lord's sake. And at the bottom, I tell you, Yedidiah may be an epithet meaning beloved of Adonai. God fully forgave David because he was as wholehearted in his repentance of sin as he was in living out Deuteronomy 6.5 on a regular basis. And that's the model for us. To be as wholehearted no matter what situation you're in. We have a lot more to learn from David. David, a man according to God's own heart in light of Jeremiah 31. I'm sorry. In light of Jeremiah 3.15. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. He's a shepherd king and he also has a lamb-like dependence on God besides a warrior-like strength that comes from God. And David, a man according to God's own heart, seeing we're on lament psalms, we need to look at David's Psalm 51. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, there's uh, in the course, if you take the full course when it goes up online, it shows that David, according to the the tradition, wrote over 4,000 psalms, 4,000 songs to be sung. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Natan the prophet came to him, After he had gone into Bathsheba, be gracious to me, O God. He is appealing to God directly from Exodus 34, 6. He's appealing directly to the character of God as revealed in Exodus 34, 6. According to your, what do you think is the word there for loving kindness? Chesed. Who said it? Be bold. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Can you imagine this is pre-Messiah? It's such a model. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. If you walk in the way of the Lord, if you in flesh, Deuteronomy 6.5, Monday, no, we'll say Sunday through Friday, yes? And you sin then it's ever before you because you're wholehearted about Deuteronomy 6.5 and you've done something that gets in the way of all of your heart, all of your being, all of your muchness living unto God. Against you and you only I have sinned. Look at how serious he is with the one true living God and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Like he turns his whole life to sin here. He's wholehearted in his confession. Behold, you desire truth. Where? In the innermost being, the integrity of being the source from which you live. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Imagine asking to renew a steadfast spirit. What does it indicate? That he had one before the sin. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, from me. Restore to me the joy of your rescue, deliverance, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be turned to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He's now specifically acknowledging that he had Uriah killed. O God, the God of my rescue, deliverance, preservation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. For what? That my mouth might declare your praise. Oh, is that where it comes from? (laughs) Yes, that's where it comes from. (laughs) For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will what? Not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. When he's done repenting for himself, his focus is back on shepherding Israel. His focus is back on the community. It is the secret of wholeheartedness because there's nothing like not crying out to God in hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, and becoming self-obsessed, then you're of no use to yourself or the community that we're a part of. That's an incredible story of his repentance. That's an incredible psalm of his repentance. Um, It's called by Avraham Chaim Feuer, the unparalleled individual lament and repentant psalm, Psalm 51. Rabbi Yonah, in his monumental work called Sha'arei uh, Teshuva, called Psalm 51 the chapter of repentance because it is the basic foundation of all of the principles of repentance in light of all of the nature and character of God in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Indeed, every fiber of David's being was immersed in the spirit of repentance. Our rabbis teach, whoever wishes to repent should scrutinize the deeds of David. David is described as the man who made taking on the yoke of repentance sublime. Sublime means inspiring awe, grandeur, beauty. He made it sublime. It's one of my favorite words. David was a model of wholeheartedness in the way of the Lord, which includes repentance. David enfleshed the ve'ahavta of the Shema. Do we? Because that is the secret. Sunday through Friday, 
That is the secret in the nitty-gritty of everyday life, is what we're doing and what others are observing, sending the message that we are all about what we declare right in the middle of our Shabbat service, and you shall love, that's observe his commandments, do righteousness, justice. It's not just emotion, it's the doing of righteousness and justice. Are we like that all week so that we in flesh loving the Lord our God with the whole of our heart, being, and muchness. That's the key. Even in the hardships of life, as we'll see, Selah, we pause to breathe. This book was written, the Psalms of Lament in Mark's Passion. That is in the suffering and death of Yeshua, the Messiah. We show all the verses in the full course. We just look at the conclusions in this sermon. Yeshua as the Davidic, suffering servant in the good news according to Mark. Evocation, evoking, or the use of lament psalms in the section on the suffering of Yeshua in chapters 14 through 15 of the good news according to Mark. Here's his conclusions. Mark's portrayal of Yeshua, son of David, in his account of the good news, especially in the blind Bartimaeus story of chapter 10, the, the unassuming royal entry scene of chapter 11. Remember that on a donkey? The unassuming royal entry scene. And the questions of chapter 12, coupled with the use of lament psalms in the explicit section on Yeshua's suffering and death in chapters 14 through 15, all of that is not focused on either the lineage or the militaristic aspects of Davidic royalty or kingship, but on the unassuming, suffering, healing aspects. What we have in the good news according to Mark, alongside the Isianic suffering servant, in select passages is, is the use of the Davidic suffering servant. Following in the footsteps of the Davidic suffering servant involves crying out to God in the midst of suffering and hardship, it involves perseverance, and it involves embodying God's desires wholeheartedly, even unto death. We breathe again. Where are the lament and praise psalms in the five books of Psalms? We showed here again that the Psalter starts with a host of lament psalms and ends with a host of praise psalms. In our PowerPoint to close last week's sermon was that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. We're never going to see God enthroned in this manner without lament that gets us to praise. This time I give you all of the uh, lament psalms as uh, suggested by Dennis Bracher. So you start with lament psalms and then there are specialized lament psalms. And notice that under specialized lament psalms, penitential, you have Psalm 51, which we just read from David. When he is turning and repenting from his sin in order to just go back to wholehearted Deuteronomy 6.5, living unto God, that's a lament psalm. It's a special kind called penitential. So notice the community psalms. We did Psalm 74 once and showed how just at the moment when what's happening in history seems so chaotic and out of control that you begin to question 
God's sovereignty. In Psalm 74, boom, that's where the Leviathan story came in to remind people of how God in all of history was faithful to his people to hear their cry and eventually answer it in a way he saw fit. That's a very serious communal lament psalm that's in the list there for community psalms. And then under that is the individual lament psalms. And remember we said that book one, Psalms 1 through 40X, is full of lament psalms? Look at that. 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, 10, 13, 14, 17, 22, 25, 26, 27, 28, 31, 36, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43. We probably exceeded the, the first book of Psalms by one. Can you see that we're not three psalms into the book of Psalms and we're lamenting? This is a powerful understanding of how this book of Psalms is structured for the benefit of God's people because crying out to him in the hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain leads to a different outcome in you and all the persons that you come in contact with, even if that situation itself does not change. Individual Lament Psalm 61. We'd be crazy not to look at one. For the choir director on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David, hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. Are you there when you got trouble, hardship, suffering, pain? Are you there? Is this our habit? Could it be the lack of praise is the lack of crying out in the trouble and just the woe is I? Look at some of the other translations. That's why they're there. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. The net, O God, hear my cry for help. Pay attention to my prayer. Remember once we were talking about Genesis and we came to that incredible passage where the word azer is used, that the woman is going to be an azer to the man in the marital relationship. Remember this? An azer means helper. And we said, and I'm not exaggerating, that a woman in a marriage is a helper to the husband in the same manner that God is a helper to Israel. That's not my extreme hobby horse example. That's the reality of it. And let me suggest that if you're married, you have a twofold possibility of reaching the highest place of assistance in the hardest place of existence by not only crying out to God, but also crying out to your spouse. Because if you're both living wholeheartedly in Deuteronomy 6.5, you won't believe the assistance that comes from male and female together as one in God. So we have a twofold source if you're married. And if you're not married, certainly you must have a friend out there that sticks closer than a brother or sister. I hope that in this two-week series, we have picked up a principle for living that will revolutionize your personal life, therefore the life of this congregation, therefore the witness of this congregation to the outside world, that we are those who have appropriated our Davidic heritage through Messiah that leads, leaves us strong on the one hand like a lion and coming to God weak like a lamb on the other hand to cry out to God in our difficult times. 
It doesn't matter what dimension of life, hardship, difficulty, suffering, or pain comes to you. Physical suffering right now all over our congregation. The bad news about not being covered in your insurance plan. Think of all the bad news you face on a regular daily basis. Do we turn to God in that or do we let it eat us alive? This is an amazing secret to life coming to you from David, coming to you from Messiah, coming to you from God, coming to you from the witness of the scriptures and coming to you from a 61-year-old who has been through a lot of hardship in life and continues to go through it. And I know that the secret is this. Just this week, we got bad news and we immediately turned to God. And I said to her, you know, I'm the kind of guy that when you get this kind of news, she'll, she'll tell you, I get fatalistic. I'm down for the count. It's going to take like a year for me to recover. No, this time I turned hard quickly and already even having to go through it, there's something that I have called shalom that I would never expect to have in this hardship. Do you have shalom, wholeness, completeness, soundness, sufficiency, satisfaction, harmony, even when you're going through the hardest of hardest circumstances? That is the secret being presented here. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint, says the New American Standard. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Look at the New King James translation. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Anybody have a heart that's overwhelmed by a circumstance? Do we turn to God in that state of being overwhelmed? And then it's what? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I could not believe my eyes and ears, Shalita, today when we were singing and I looked up and the kids saw me, you know, get my pencil out and write in my sudur. I couldn't believe we were singing, let the king of my heart be the rock to which I run. It was actually, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. Could you hear me say amen? I said, amen. It's the Hebrew, right? Cincinnati calls said they heard me yell amen during that. Let the king of my heart be the mountain or the rock to which I run. Imagine we sang that and this verse is coming to bear on us today. Look at this. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Look at the net. Lead me up to an inaccessible rocky summit. Remember last week we said when David refers to a rock in this way, he doesn't mean like the stone you chuck in the stream to get rid of your sins. He doesn't mean the big boulder. He means the rocks that can be hidden in like a cave, like you saw Cave 11 at Qumran. Lead me to that inaccessible rock where I'll be protected inside a rock cave from this enemy that is trying to do me in. It's an unbelievable passage. When the hardship is more than is possibly tolerated, do we cry out to God and say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Let's think about the damage that happens when we don't do that and how much harder the heart is. And if you have any resentment of hardship, trouble, pain, and suffering in your life, look at the conclusion of the scriptures, look at the conclusion of David, and hear the conclusion of a 61-year-old about all of that in your life if you resent it. Let me suggest that a lesson I have learned is that without Without hardship, trouble, suffering, and pain, 
Westerners, in particular, take life for granted, expect an easy breezy life, and do not turn to God wholeheartedly. And the hardship is when we go, oh God, I can't take it any longer. Would you please act? And that's all he's looking for in the first place is wholeheartedness. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with the whole of your heart. And that lesson is lost on us in the West. When you have it all and it's so easy, take it from a guy who once went to Haiti where there was nothing, where we had one meal a day and they're so thankful about it. And all we could do when we came home is observe all the ways they thank God. And when we got home, all the ways We take all of life for granted because we expect everything to work flawlessly in the Western world. But they, oh my goodness, they get one moment of light, electricity. They get one moment of a non, you know, 32 degree shower. They get one moment of some incredible thing that we take for granted and they're blessing God for a half hour. It's a lesson to be learned for us. Understand that what we said in two previous sermons, chaos serves God's purposes. And chaos takes all kinds of forms, from evil to hardship to pain to suffering to trouble of all kinds. And in it, we reach out to the rock who is higher than I. You stressed about school? Reach out to God wholeheartedly. Watch the shalom you get while you continue to be in that pressurized situation. You have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. David is famous for heralding all God's prior acting in history and even other people God acted on behalf of. You keep rehearsing the history. This week, when hardship hit, one of the things I heard my wife pray was, thank you for the way that in 40, almost two years of marriage, you worked all these situations out in our past history. And even as she was praying, I felt the strength of myself rising up to be able to withstand the next test of life. The shelter of his wings. These aren't just empty metaphors. This isn't like those fluffy words that are said in a hard situation. Like, you know, we said last time, like, you know, when life deals you lemons, make lemonade. Does that help anyone? You have given me the inheritance of those who revere your name. You will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. Do you see the perspective change? Do you see the perspective change? You start here with the problem, the trouble, the hardship, the suffering, the pain. You start there, you cry out. And as you cry out, you start making progress in your perspective until eventually, no matter what, even in your death, you would praise God because you would follow it through all the way. I will sing praise to your name forever from lament to praise that I may pay my vows. How? Day by day by day by day by day. Gutsuris, you know this is the Yiddish word for trouble, right? This should be a bumper sticker. It used to be gut milk. That is so gone, right? Heidi will give you a lecture on Hawaii. Gut milk is a problem. Yeah, it's gutsuris. Everyone can answer that. And we said, if you don't, if your life is just so great and easy, then please call the office because you can be the number one person to pray for the rest of us who got service. Got service? 
I fill it out again. Got stress, got hardship, trouble, suffering, pain, grief, sorrow, affliction, distress, trial, tribulation, woe, adversity, difficulty, calamity. We needed a cellar there. Catastrophe, anguish, disease, illness, misfortune, ordeal, misery, plight, blight, fright, fear. You fill in the blanks. Is that what you have? Then get shalom. What is shalom? Wholeness, completeness, soundness, sufficiency, satisfaction, harmony, and peace. Somehow, at some level, to some extent, even in that hard circumstance. Let's pray. Salvino Malkenu, our Father, our King, we thank you for the privilege of being those who have direct access to you. We thank you that we can cry out to you in the midst of whatever it is that we're facing and we could be in a different place than others that don't have that privilege. And we pray no matter what trouble we are all facing as individuals, as a community, that we would be those that learn from you, from Messiah, from David, from the permanent Davidic King of Kings, Yeshua, how to practice this lament in a way that brings us to you. And God, we lay our lives before you as a congregation and ask that we would be those who are faithful to enflesh Deuteronomy 6.5 in the nitty-gritty of our everyday life. We want to be those that love you in action with the whole of our heart, the whole of our being, and the whole of our muchness. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua, HaMashiach, Amen.